0: Welcome to the Choose Life Radio Network. Your host is Jill Taylor. Every week we bring you a candid conversation with someone who's making a difference for the cause of life. And now here's Jill to introduce today's guest on Choose Life Radio.
1: I'm grateful for our guest today. He's a sinner like me. He's found Christ Jesus like me. And he's doing a mighty work with pregnancy centers around this continent. Welcome to Choose Life Radio. I'm Jill Taylor, your host, and this is Dr. Anthony Levitino joining us today. Thank you. We're glad you're here. So may I call you Anthony? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Anthony, tell me a little bit about your story.
2: I graduated from medical school in 1976, and if you asked me at the time how I felt about the abortion issue, I wouldn't have hesitated for a second to tell you I was pro-choice. This was a decision between a woman, her doctor, and no one, including the baby's father, had anyone to, anything to say about it. A lot of people identify themselves as pro-life or pro-choice, but for many people, it doesn't impact them personally. But when you're an obstetrician gynecologist and you say you're pro-choice, this isn't just some vague political position. You have to decide whether you're going to actually do abortions. So along with learning how to do deliveries, hysterectomies, and all the other things you learn in in an obstetrics and gynecologic residency, I learned to do first and second trimester abortions in the late 70s. It was during my first year of training that uh, my wife and I met at the hospital, and uh, we dated and made a very foolish mistake early on in our relationship. You see, she was pro-life. She wanted nothing to do with abortion. New York had legalized abortion three years before Roe v. Wade. And when she was in her training, she was asked if she would be willing to ex- assist at abortion procedures. She said, absolutely not. And she wasn't getting involved in obstetrics. So that was the end of it, as far as she was concerned, until we met. Now, obviously, we found out pretty quickly we were on opposite sides of the issue, And we made the first, biggest, and most fundamental mistake in our relationship we could. Instead of hashing it out and coming to some kind of resolution, we ignored it. And that set up a pattern that lasted for way too long. But we got married. We wanted to have a family. We both came from big families and found out pretty quickly that we just weren't getting pregnant. She had a serious infertility problem. I sent her to the best infertility expert in town, and anyone who's been through an infertility workup knows that it is difficult, it's painful, it's embarrassing, it's very difficult. She would come home from those visits, lock herself in the bathroom and cry because there were two ironies that were not lost on her. One, here she is married to an obstetrician-gynecologist and she can't get pregnant. And two, here she is trying to get pregnant and her husband's killing babies doing abortions. But of course, as quickly as she had that thought, she'd push it out. Her doctor told us that there was one more procedure he could try. It would only take an hour and a half. And when he walked out of the operating room four and a half hours later, he said that, look, you know, I, I never tell anyone that they're not going to have children, but don't count on it. But we were devastated. I mean, having a family was important. And so we decided, okay, we'll adopt a child. And anyone who's tried to adopt a child, at least adopt a baby, knows how difficult that is. We went to religious agencies, state agencies, county agencies, and the best we could do after months of effort was to get on a five-year waiting list to get on the actual waiting list. And it was during that time, and I'm still doing abortions in my residency training, and it, but it was during that time that I had my first doubts about it. And they were strictly selfish, but I'm not an idiot. I know why there are no babies to adopt. It was people like me doing abortions, and. I remember thinking, you know, wouldn't even one of these patients allow me to take her child home to care for as our own? But, of course, it doesn't work that way. After months of that frustration, uh, I came up with what my wife still credits as the best idea I've ever come up with in our 43-year marriage at this point. And that was, you know, this is nuts. We're, we're, we're not getting anywhere. But I know 50 obstetricians on a first-name basis. Let's advertise. Let's let them know we're looking for a baby, and maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get lucky. And in August of 1978, I was working in the operating room when the circulating nurse tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and she was holding up a piece of paper that said, call Marcia as soon as you're done. Marcia was the head of social services at our hospital and she's one of the people that I talked to. It's all the note said, but I knew what it meant. And sure enough, she informed me there was a 15-year-old girl in labor in the delivery room who'd had no prenatal care. The first time she saw a doctor was the day before But she's doing well. She appears healthy. The baby seems to be healthy. She wants to give her baby up for adoption. Are you interested? Well, of course I was interested. I remembered staring at the face of the telephone to call my wife with this news and know that I was just seven digits away from becoming a father. And literally, by the grace of God, we were able to adopt a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. Super, we have a baby. And as sometimes happens, After all the years and tears and all the effort, once we had a baby, my wife got pregnant the very next month, and our son Sean was born in July of 1979. (laughs) Heather and Sean were just about 10 months apart, Wow! as somebody joked, you know, Irish babies. But anyway, um, this is great. I've got a son and a daughter now, and any doubts I had about abortion simply evaporated, and I went to business as usual. We went down to the west coast of Florida for a year, found out that a young couple with young kids didn't belong in a retirement community, and then moved back to upstate New York and I set up practice with a physician that I had trained with. Now Bill and I were practiced abortionists and we were not running an abortion clinic. It was just a regular OBGYN office like most women have been to. But abortion was a part of our practice. And those of us in the abortion industry in the early eighties were looking for a better method of second trimester abortion. We were doing saline abortions before that, and I won't get into them, but suffice it to say, these women had to go through labor, and it would take anywhere from 8 to 36 hours for them to abort their usually dead children, and it was very difficult on patients. It was very expensive. It was because of the prolonged hospital stays, and frankly, it wasn't. it was a pretty dangerous procedure. We wanted a method of second trimester abortion like first trimester abortions where the patient would go to sleep and when she woke up, it would all be over. And that's when D&E abortions, so-called dismemberment abortions were developed. No one else, even though there are a lot of abortionists in Albany, no one else would touch that procedure. And we saw an opportunity, so we trained ourselves to do these second trimester D&E abortions. And we were getting referrals from other physicians to do these abortions for, on their patients. As I said, abortion was only a small part of our practice. But over the next four years, I did 1,200 abortions, including over 100 second trimester DE abortions up to 23 weeks. I mean, 23 weeks is more than halfway through pregnancy, give you an idea of what we're talking about. But life's good. You know, the kids are growing and we're finally making some money. We can afford a home. And everything seemed just fine until June 23rd, 1984. June 23rd was a Saturday, it was a beautiful day in Albany. Heather was exactly two months away from her sixth birthday. Sean was just a few days away from his fifth birthday. And, you know, I was on call that day. It wasn't very busy, so made rounds and then basically got to spend the rest of the day with my family. We took the kids to an amusement park. We had dinner together. An ordinary day. And we had friends come over for cake and coffee that evening. And when we were talking with our friends that evening, we heard the screech of brakes out in front of our house. The kids had gone out on the road, and Heather had been hit by a car. She was a mess. I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to be able to save people's lives. My wife was an intensive care nurse. This is our work. We did everything we could, but it made absolutely no difference, and she literally died in our arms in the back of an ambulance that night. Anyone listening who has kids may think they have some idea of what that might feel like. If you haven't been through this yourself, you have no idea what it's feel like. I hope you never find out. But what do you do after a disaster? I mean, you bury your child, you take some time off, and then you try to get into your life again. And I don't know, remember exactly how long it was, but I showed up at OR number nine at Albany Medical Center to do a second trimester DE abortion, like, just like I had over 100 times before that. I wasn't thinking of this as anything unusual. This was routine. And I had other things on my mind. And I talked about this being a dismemberment abortion, and I won't go into detail, but trust me, you have to literally tear a living human being to pieces, and that's what a DNA abortion is. That's what all suction or surgical abortions are. You mentioned In- the
1: word suction. You're having to account for every piece of that child.
2: Absolutely. When you're done with that procedure, you have to make sure that you get two arms, two legs, and all the pieces. Because if you don't, your patient will come back infected, bleeding, or dead. Well, I started that abortion and I literally tore out an arm or a leg and I just stared at it in the clamp and I got sick. But you know, as I said, as you, as you brought out, once you start an abortion, you can't stop. You've got to finish it. And I did. And for the first time in my career, I really truly looked for the first time at that pile of body parts. And I didn't see her wonderful right to choose. And we were making $800 a procedure. And this was in 1984. That's the equivalent of $2,200 today. And I used to make that money perfectly legally in 15 minutes. But I didn't see her wonderful right to choose, and I didn't see the, the money I just made in 15 minutes, and I didn't see what a wonderful doctor I was helping her with a problem. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And that's what started me on the road to getting away from the abortion practice entirely.
1: Do you think, Anthony, that losing your daughter hardened your heart? took away feelings of ending the lives of the unborn, where you really just felt like life is over for me in so many ways?
2: Not right away. I mean, I was dedicated to this. As I said, I was pro-choice. And I felt bad after that abortion, but I knew why I felt bad, and I'll feel better, you Mm -hmm. know, as time goes by. You connected Um, it to your Just like I got used to it in the first place. Right. I mean, the first time you do that procedure, it's like, oh my God. I mean, even though I was used to doing first trimester abortions, the second trimester abortion is, let's just say, quite an experience. But you can get used to anything.
1: Before we go to a break, which is coming up really fast for us, would you share about the body of Christ, the church? I've been very concerned about the fact that so many people in the church do not understand the story you just told. They accept the fact that it's legal and if their child needs to have an abortion, then she should have an abortion. It's, it's her choice. Why doesn't the church speak out?
2: That's a complicated question. We probably don't have a, as much time as we could use on. First, it depends on which church you're in. And even then, there are inconsistencies. I met Bernard Nath- Nathanson many years ago, and many people know that name. Uh, he was one of the founding members of NARAL. He did over 80,000 abortions including his own child, and eventually became pro-life. And he once said, if the church had stood strong back in the early 70s, when all this was happening, abortion would have never happened. And I believe that he's right.
1: We're going to take a quick break and come right back to Converse More with Dr. Anthony Levitino on Choose Life Radio.
0: Choose Life Radio believes that life is a sacred gift from God and should be treated as such, from conception to natural death. Our purpose is to share in-depth conversations with persons who have a direct connection to the life issue. These conversations encourage, inspire, and shine the light of God's amazing grace on a lost and hurting world. Your gift today, whatever the size, will help us continue to expand the reach of these life-affirming conversations. You can give generously online by visiting ChooseLifeRadio.com. Just click the Donate button at the top of the page, or you can mail your gift to Choose Life Radio, Post Office Box 36622, Canton, Ohio, 44735. That address is also posted at ChooseLifeRadio.com. Your gift helps keep this life-affirming message on the radio. Now let's get back to the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Choose Life Radio, I'm Jill Taylor, your host, and today our guest is in studio with us, Dr. Anthony Levitino. He's educating us today. He's telling his story, and he's going to talk a little bit more about the issue of the churches not knowing how or not willing to address this. So talk about that, would you please?
2: I'm going to tell a little side story first, it'll help fill it in. My wife and I were both raised Catholic. She's Irish, I'm Sicilian, come on. (laughs) Um, But we left the Catholic Church quite a while ago for numerous reasons that are not important. We eventually went to a Presbyterian church. It was a PCUSA church. And this was while I was still doing abortions, and they had absolutely zero problem with that. That particular church had no problem with that at all. So as I tell people, it's not like my wife and I never darken the inside of a church. But people who were very demonstrative about their faith always made me uncomfortable. But in 1983, I'm still doing abortions on a regular basis, and I arrive at my office and I see something that no abortionist ever wants to see. We're being picketed by some of the local Christian groups. And people always ask, you know, what's it like? What are you thinking when we're out there picketing? And I tell them, I'll tell you what we're thinking. It gives us a siege mentality. It's us against you kooks outside. And it was during that time that uh, I, a new patient came to my practice. Her name was Susan. She was in her mid-30s. She barely came up to my shoulders. She came in for a routine GYN and exam and a pap smear. Nothing special. When it was done, she said, can I talk to you? And doctors in the audience particularly know, a lot of times, and I think especially with women and new patients, they won't tell you what's really on their mind until they've developed some level of trust. So that's not that unusual. So I, I looked at the lady, asked what I could do for her, and she completely blew me away when she said, I've been sent here to give you a message that Jesus loves you. He cares about you. This is not what he had intended for your life, to be an abortionist. Please stop. Now, as I said, it's not like we never darken the inside of a church, but people who were very demonstrative about their faith always made me uncomfortable. And believe me, doctors listen to their patients. And I had no patient that had ever spoken to me that way. And I had one overwhelming thought when she said that, and that was, I have to hustle this kook out of my office as fast as I could, and I did. A year later, she showed up for her routine GYN exam and pap smear, and when it was over, she said, can I talk to you? And I went, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, she gave me exactly the same message. I've been sent here to give you a message that Jesus loves you. He cares about you. This is not what he had intended for your life to be an abortionist. Please stop. Well, not only had I remembered what she said, and believe me, I had remembered what she'd said, but in the intervening year, she had sent at least three personal greeting cards to my office marked confidential on the envelope with the message in the the card. One time during the intervening year, I arrived at my office and there was a plate of brownies sitting on my desk with the message tied to the brownies. Now, she's not an idiot. She knew what I thought. But how long would you evangelize someone like that? Who thought you were crazy? Well, she did it for seven years.
1: Anthony, that's amazing.
2: Well, when when it it gets a (laughs) lot more amazing because there's parts of the story I, I don't really even have time to tell. It's much more complicated. But having said that, let me backtrack now. We were in a PCA church when I was doing abortions, and not PCA, PCA, PCUSA church. And we were still in that same church when I stopped doing abortions. And it was not too long after that that I got involved in the pro life movement. Well, now we my wife and i were faced with a decision that we had to make i mean this is a church that supports abortion are we going to support this church that supports something that we have come to see as wrong and we had two choices you can either leave or you can fight and we decided to fight i talked to the minister i talked to the elders i sent letters to the synod i did everything i could to try to make some crack in this edifice. And it was obvious it was going nowhere. So we finally eventually left that church. That's what set us on a hunt ultimately for a Bible-based church, something that we had not experienced before in our lives uh, and eventually found ourselves in a non-denominational Christian church where we actually accepted Christ several, several years later. It took time. When I stopped doing abortions, I mean, my partners who still were doing abortions were very understanding. They understood what had happened and Heather's death and all of that. And that was okay. But when my wife and I got involved in the pro-life movement, that was not cool because they felt that our being involved in the pro-life movement was casting a light on them. And I understand that. But, you know, it was interesting. We lost every friend that we had. Uh, The phone stopped ringing. The invitations dried up. But God was very good. I mean, he he just filled the void with pro-life Christian friends, and they were our models for all those years before we actually accepted him. One story I always tell, I'll throw in quickly, uh, I left that practice in 1990, and I was speaking on a limited basis at that point, and about a couple of months after I had left, and he put many people in front of us, but one I always remember Uh, It was a few months after I'd left my practice. I I was, we were living in Western New York and, or Eastern New York and Albany. I was on a Saturday morning. I crossed the border into Vermont and gave a presentation for a group of people in a high school gymnasium on a Saturday morning. Maybe 50 people showed up. And when it was over, this woman, again, short, she was in her seventies, came up very nicely chattering away at high speed being very gracious and go, thank you so much. And, and uh, you know, come in doing your presentation. And isn't it beautiful what Jesus is doing in your life? And I went, oh my God, another one. <laughs> and I felt like a fraud. I didn't want this lady to think I was something that I wasn't. So I, after what I hope was an eloquent presentation, I stemmed and stammered like an idiot, looking at this lady and said, well, ma'am, or, uh, I just don't feel about Jesus the way you do. And I'll never forget. She stopped chattering, looked up, got a big smile on her face. And said, he knows you, sweetie. He's going to get you sooner or later. And turned around and walked away. And it was very (laughs) soon after that that we did, as I said, find ourselves, we deliberately went out and found ourselves a Bible-based, Bible-believing church that we accepted Christ in. This brings us back to Susan, because the minister who brought us the last little bit of that journey knew nothing of any of this. Uh, He just was very experienced. And he said, you know, in my experience, a lot of people help you on the road to Christ. Wouldn't it be nice to go back and thank them? And I thought of Susan right away. As I said, she'd been keeping up her one-woman war for seven years and asked her out to lunch and found out then that she was one of those people picketing my office in 1983, seven years before. I, I would have never understood it before, but I understood it now when she says, I can't explain it. I just felt very strongly that I was to deliver that message to you. And I didn't want to patronize an abortionist But I felt very strongly that I was meant to do that, so I did, and she kept it up all those years.
1: And prayed for you, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're seeing the end of the 40 Days for Life and for this season, and it'll happen twice a year, and it's a really well-run organization. They're careful about the signs they have, they're as polite as they can be. And what you have to hope is you don't have some extra people come on who want to shout and scream at them. But I think that the idea that there is someone standing there saying, I'm I'm here to talk. I'm here to tell you my story. If you just listen, I'll tell you what hurt me when I had the abortion. That's a very powerful thing. And I'm glad you had those people, even though they were driving you crazy. (laughs) I'm glad that you were touched by them. You're a gifted speaker, and you do that for organizations that are looking for this story, right?
2: Well, much of what my wife and I do now is to support pregnancy assistance centers across the country. Uh, Many people don't realize, I mean, as bad as the abortion situation is, there are more pregnancy assistance centers across this country than there are abortion clinics. And they really provide a place where men and women can go get a free pregnancy test, many times get uh, sexually transmitted disease testing, get an ultrasound and actually see their baby. Ultrasound is so important because it's been shown again and again that if a, a woman who's pregnant and is not sure about an abortion decision sees her baby on a television screen, she bonds. All of a sudden, it's not just some vague thing. That's my son or daughter. And the vast majority of them will not abort afterwards. And interestingly, if dad sees the baby on the screen, even fewer of them end up with an abortion. So the pregnancy centers are so critical in terms of providing support to people, giving them real choices in terms of their pregnancy and not just having abortion be the only choice. And most of those centers are Christian-based. And many times these men and women are also hearing the gospel for the first time.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to ask you about that. A woman who has had an abortion or is determined to have an abortion, how do you weave Christ into that? How can the church do a better job in that area?
2: How do I weave that in? That's an interesting question because, see, even as a Christian physician, I would not be talking Religiously, in my practice. On the other hand, I'm frequently asked, What do you say then? And I will refer them to the pregnancy center, of course, mm. because they're going to get that there. But from my standpoint, a couple of things. You're always hearing, you know, well, it's just an embryo or it's just a fetus. Well, yeah, those are scientifically correct terms. But the way that the other side's using them is to denigrate that human being, to make it sound like it's something less than it is. I will use the term baby, but more frequently, and especially when I'm talking to patients, I use a term that is 100% correct absolutely all the time, no matter what stage of gestation we're talking about. This is your son or daughter. And the basic message is, I know that you're under tremendous stress and don't ever, ever talk about an abortion being convenient. There's Mm -hmm. nothing convenient about pregnancy and there's nothing convenient about abortion. I said, but I know you're under tremendous stress. But no matter what your financial situation, no matter what your family situation, and I know you're scared, but there is one thing you can give your son or daughter that no one else can, and that is a chance to live.
1: I don't know how this happens so fast, but we're running out of time together. Dr. Anthony Levitino, I want our listener to know that the worst in us, the evil that we are capable of doing can be turned into ministry when God takes it and remolds us into the person that he wants us to be, and that's exactly what's happened with you. Precious listener, you have heard one more godly man whom God turned around, his story's every bit as difficult and as beautiful as those we've heard in the past. I want you to go to our website, like and share this interview. I really suggest you move mountains to get Dr. Lavatino to speak at your next event. In your church would be awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony Levitino, for being with us today.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: And I'm excited to have you join us next week for another story of God's touch on the lives of His children. I'm Jill Taylor, thanking you for joining us today. and looking forward to you coming back next week on Choose Life Radio.
0: The preceding program was sponsored by the Choose Life Radio Network of Canton, Ohio.